Welcome to the If We Knew Then podcast. I'm Stephen Socks. And I'm Lori Socks. And today we're joined by Nikki McCrory from McCrory Pediatrics. This was a delightful conversation. McCrory Pediatrics is a one-stop shop for therapies. I don't know about you parents, but getting in the car and driving to speech, and then you get back in the car and you drive to occupational therapy, you get back in the car, you go home, the next day you drive to physical therapy. This is a facility that offers everything and just such a great approach and theory and foundation. And not only that, but her support and her passion that she has just to listen to how she started, even just wanting to be a speech therapist and then creating this beautiful system. So no matter where you live, you can take advantage of the insight and expertise that comes with her 20 years of experience. Nikki McCrory. Hi, Nikki. How are you? I'm great. I'm great. So welcome and thank you for being here with us today. And could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Um, My name is Nikki McCrory and I am a speech language pathologist as well as a board certified behavioral analyst. And I am the um, executive director and owner of McCrory Pediatrics which is a multidisciplinary clinic here in the Los Angeles area. And you're in Sherman Oaks? We actually have two locations. We have a location in Tarzana, as well as in Valencia, which is in the Santa Clarita area. Nikki, what motivated you to become a speech pathologist? You know, it's an interesting question because it wasn't actually my first choice. I honestly hadn't even heard of what speech pathology was before. When I was in high school, I was a certified nursing assistant and I worked full-time in our local nursing home. And so I went to college with this intention that I was going to become a nurse. Um, And as I continued to work in nursing homes, I saw that nurses were spending less and less time directly with patients. And that was the part that I really loved. I loved interfacing with clients. And so I went to my school counselor and said, you know, I want some similar to nursing, but I really don't know what that is. And he said, well, have you ever heard of communication disorders? And I said, no, I've never heard of that. And he suggested that I took an intro course and I was fascinated. I went into class for the very first day and the instructor was a stutterer. And um, they talked about all these different types of places you could work, all the different populations you could work with, um, the fact that there you could really work anywhere in the world. And that really excited me. Um, so, um, it was honestly the very first coursework that I had read from cover to cover in college. (laughs) And, um, I just, I just knew it was right for me. And is that, is that what, what led you then to create McCrory? Cause maybe tell our, tell our audience, uh, what McCrory is and what it offers and and what you do. Yeah. So we are, um, 
you could you could look at us two ways. You could think of us as a multidisciplinary clinic because of the fact that we have multiple disciplines. But I really like to talk uh, or think about us as being more transdisciplinary. So meaning that we work as a cohesive team and we really know what each child's goals are, so that we can support them in our individual sessions. So if I am practicing speech pathology with a client, I know their OT and PT goals so that I can reinforce those in my therapy sessions. Um, so that's kind of what we do. So we do a whole variety of services for our children and families. So we offer speech therapy, occupational therapy, physical therapy, child development services, um, ABA services, adaptive skills services, social skills services. We have two intensive early intervention programs for children, one for children with global developmental delays and another one for children with autism. Uh, we offer social skills. We offer behavior support out in the community. Um, we have SIB shops, we do uh, parent support groups, we do individual counseling services, um, and we have a therapeutic preschool as well. So it was an interesting journey because when I started McCrory Pediatrics, um, I really went with the intent to be just a pediatric speech therapy clinic. But I really listened to what our family's struggles were, and those struggles were at the time, there was not a one-stop shop. For families. So you would families that would drive across the valley for speech and then drive across the other side of the valley for an OT session. And when you started to think about the burden that it was putting on the children and families, how much time they were losing out is just quality time as a family, time being spent in a car. And then of course the challenge of professional to profession being able to reach each other to collaborate and consult in the best care for that client, it just didn't exist. Um, and so, um, you know, we'd have parents ask, you know, why don't you do it? And I sat there and thought, I don't know, let's do it. <laughs> let's be that clinic. So. I like that you have collaboration because we know you from school. We know McCrory from school because that's where our BII and BID services come from. Um, I like, I like the fact that you, uh, coordinate the services and they complement each other because one of the things that I'm always trying to get at school on board is for things to you know for Liam's curriculum to be to influence what's going on in speech and in OT and for those to communicate so it's such a and because it is such a great approach because I believe it creates cohesiveness for then the student as well. Absolutely, and it helps with generalization of skills. And more importantly, it helps with more rapid progress, right? Because those goals are being just reinforced throughout the whole entire day for that learner. So um, it's a very good approach. <laughs> I'm so glad you said that because it validates. I feel like whenever I go into an IEP, they, this, sometimes the people doing the services will be perplexed or this, this is not how I work. And, and so I'm so glad that you validate that because that's always my argument is that this is how we support so that way we get the best out of out of Liam. So um, I like that. I was actually unaware that this is what your your home base, what McCrory actually is, what you what you do out in the community is is there you guys have a website? We do. It's, it's a very difficult one to remember. It's www.mccrorypediatrics.com. <laughs> Where else can people follow you? People can follow us on Instagram. That's where we post stories of inspiration as well as therapy tips. We're also on Facebook, um, Pinterest, and then on our webpage, um, as you mentioned, we also have a parent blog. And on that website, can people explore some of the different therapies or do you have um, tips? Because I know that we're going to be speaking with some of the different therapists from, from McCrory 
um, in different episodes coming up. But is there a place where people can explore your website? Because I know that we do also have listeners that aren't right here in California or all over the world, but um, to kind of get a feel for, you know, a lot of our listeners may not even understand the therapies that are out there uh, what's available or what their meaning is. What an option is for them. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think we go in pretty good detail on the different service types and what they cover. Um, and then in addition, we like to have it be a resource for families as well. So we do have a parent blog as well as a therapist blog. And honestly, both blogs would be relevant to parents and um, to practitioners as well. So we like to include some therapy tips and, and, and give those types of supports to families as well. And right now, since it's a pandemic and we're doing so many things via Zoom, has that opened up uh, a window for people who maybe aren't in the vicinity to, to obtain services through McCrory? Unfortunately, no. I mean, it is an option and we've been blessed that we've had staff that were willing just to hit the pavement running and learn everything they needed to so quickly in response to the pandemic to be able to adapt to providing telehealth services as an option. But uh, the way that uh, insurance works, unfortunately, is you have to be um, licensed in each state of which you practice. So even if a family were residing, let's say in Boston, um, I would have to be licensed in Boston, even though technically I'm here and my computer's here, they would still see me as servicing a person in Boston. So therefore I'd have to have my license there. Oh, that's really interesting. I didn't know that. Um, that so, but still parents and families can go on to understand and get a feel for what different services are and, and take advantage of your blog. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we've always known your services through school, like we said, but people can come to you on a private basis and, and hire your therapist, or is it all through insurance? So we work with pretty much all insurance carriers for the most part. Um, in addition, we have uh, independent contracts with Kaiser Permanente and Easter Seals. We also have contracts through several of the different regional centers here in California, as well as um, we are a non-public agency through the California State Department of Education. So we do work with a lot of different school districts, Burbank School District, LA Unified, um, Saugus, Newhall, just to name a few. And when you talk about having to be um, licensed in the state, so you could function throughout the state or is, are, you, are you primarily just Southern California? Yeah, we could, um, honestly. Managing two facilities is, 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 is good. And, you know, and honestly, that's why we put the name on the building is we didn't want to lose our primary goal and focus, which was to provide quality services. It's really easy to hide behind a name where nobody knows who the owner is. And it just kind of keeps us honest, you know, when we have to have our name out there, it makes sure that the quality always is the most important. Speech is a really hard service to receive. There's a, it's high demand, I'm, I'm assuming. It's, sometimes it's really hard to find a speech therapist. Have you seen a, a great uh, change in the industry? And do you have any un, like, I'd, opinion as to what that change would have been? I mean, I think, honestly, since we've been in business, I think it's always been a challenge to recruit the number of speech pathologists that you could really have on staff. I think it continues to be an area of need. I think it continues to be a shortage area. Um, I think perhaps maybe that will change. And what I mean by that is we're seeing more and more online schools that have been opening for graduate programs. I think historically what's been happening is graduate schools have closed um, and the graduate schools are very small. So they bring in a very small number of students per year. So I'm hoping with more of these online 
programs that uh, perhaps we'll be able to kind of fit that gap, fill that gap a little bit better. And you've been doing this for, for 20 years. What changes have you seen in the industry just um, as far as supports for children with needs? I think there's definitely a lot more options for families than there were 20 years ago. I mean, even when I look just in Los Angeles, there's so many more private practices that have popped up over the years. And I think while not in abundance, I think that there is a trend more towards having an interdisciplinary, maybe not interdisciplinary, but certainly a multidisciplinary model. You'll find more private practices um, that have more than just one service provider under the roof or before you might have just an OT clinic or just a speech therapy clinic, more and more you're starting to see clinics that are offering, you know, more services. I still don't think that there's many that have the, the gamut that we have. Um, we tend to be one of the larger ones, but I think overall we're seeing more of that multidisciplinary model, which is great. You started this 20 years ago and 20 years ago, I would imagine things were a lot different as far as just the perception of disability or even like, you know, our, our son Liam with Down syndrome, you know, some supports weren't offered because sometimes uh, people with Down syndrome were referred to as unteachable. And I'm just curious what it was like 20 years ago when you started. I think it's a multifaceted answer because there's so many different pieces that have changed, good or bad. I think 20 years ago, accessing services through regional center was a piece of cake. I mean, they would fund everything. Um, and then, you know, budgets got tighter in the state of California and this push for, you know, evidence-based practice. So even though we know that some children respond really well, for example, to music therapy, there was this argument that maybe there wasn't a lot of evidence to support music therapy or kids might respond really well that have low tone or sensory processing disorders with things like hippotherapy, but there wasn't a lot of science behind that. So those are the things that they kind of stopped funding. So the options for families started to kind of shrink. But then on the flip side, now we've had some nice insurance reform and insurance is covering more and more. Um, but you know, for some families that may be a barrier to accessing services, right? You have to meet deductibles. You have to have a plan that covers those things. You have to have a copay. And for some families, those become, you know, financially a burden and, and, and maybe not as accessible. I think today, you know, 20 years ago, we didn't have as much research. We didn't have as much knowledge. Like you said, you know, there were, you know, statistics that would say like a child with Down syndrome or a child with autism, you know, wasn't going to develop further language or cognitive skills past this age and whatever they were at that level is sort of where they were going to be. And so it was sort of like, well, we're not going to fund for services. I remember being called into regional center many times as a kind of independent assessor where it was like, okay, well, their cognitive ability is here and their speech and language is commensurate so we should just discharge services and I was always advocating and you know showing what Asher recommended that you can't just look at that one piece to determine a person's human potential and would always fight to continue those services um, so I think you know knowledge is power I think families have access to a lot more knowledge you know the the internet and, and those different resources and and now there's just more organizations you know there's a lot more nonprofits and things like that that are really there to support and empower parents so in one way it's gotten better um, but in some ways perhaps it's gotten more challenging well in the 10 years that we've been in the down syndrome community we've seen a lot of change so it's interesting to hear what you've seen uh, across the board in 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 the past 20 years have you seen a lot of different changes to the actual therapies i know like there's the the music therapy is that how is that is that relatively new or 
I just, I think now, you know, there's a big push for evidence-based intervention. And I think now that, you know, you become more um, accountable to your stakeholders, to your constituents who are paying for services, and, and you really have to show that science behind it. And I think that's where we're seeing this influx of, um, you mentioned behavioral intervention, you know, that influx of ABA, because ABA, it has a lot of, it's all science-based, you know, it's all evidence-based, it's been around forever. Um, and it's really a science that's used to change all human behavior, not just, you know, behavior problems that we think of, but, you know, any human behavior we want to change is all based on the principles of ABA. If you look at any weight loss program or smoking cessation program or alcohol reduction program, it's all based on those same fundamental principles. I see a lot of question and concern from different parents on various web pages, and a lot of it does have to do with behavior, particular behaviors that maybe will cause concern that might actually be if it was your typical child, they might just go, oh, that's cute and quirky. But I like what you just said about changing behavior and that you would do it for all human beings. Can you speak a little bit about that to our audience to address some behavioral concerns and supports and approaches? Yeah, I think, you know, I think there's a couple things. I think there's a misconception that ABA only works on reducing problem behavior, where that there is a piece of that for sure, but it also works on skill acquisition, right, and replacing that problem behavior. And we look at social, um, social appropriate behavior that would allow that individual to be able to reach their fullest potential. And if their behaviors are impacting their ability to learn or access their environment, then we want to be able to mitigate that. You know, we're not trying to change the human behavior to the person and we're not trying to make them and mold them into being something they're not and not being respectful of their individual differences, but trying to determine what's the function of that behavior? What are they doing it? And nine times out of 10, it's communication, right? They're telling you by doing an inappropriate behavior, either I want that or I don't want that. So it's looking then what's the more appropriate way to teach them how to use a more appropriate social behavior to gain access to the things that they want or to reject the things that they don't want. Do you have any uh, advice for parents? Because there were a few behaviors that becomes a big conversation because I think people get worried. And I think it's about, you know, age, age appropriate behaviors, what, what they deem age appropriate. Last week I saw my child is taking off, keeps taking off his clothes. I can't get him to keep his clothes on. Um, like if Sophia was a little kid and kept taking off her clothes, I'd be like, Sophia is just taking off her clothes. And nobody would probably blink an eye to that, right? But there's such a great concern when it's impacted by uh, a learning difference or a disability. Can, can, you, can you speak on that? And sometimes is that maybe we get too hyper-focused on the fact that this individual has a learning difference, that maybe we have different expectations for that individual than we might of their of their sibling. So I think it's it's looking at what's age appropriate and what's socially appropriate and and the difference in the individual's learning style. Like you mentioned, your daughter Sophia, that might be a phase that she may grow out of right? There may be a typical piece of that. And so we want to look to see, well, if that's a, is that a typical piece or is that exceeding that typical piece? You know, it's one thing to be taking your clothes off at home and running around in your backyard. It's a different if we're in public and we're at the grocery store and we're taking our clothes off, um, that becomes of concern. And can that individual discriminate between those two environments? And if they can't, then that might be, become a social significant behavior that we want to work on, right? Because that can become a safety issue. Um, for that individual. 
Yeah, I think the comfort that Nikki you're giving us and parents are is that yes, if if it is indeed something that needs to be addressed, it's a concern, then the help is there and these things can be corrected and maybe maybe don't stress as much as we as parents probably do. <laughs> That's probably good advice. <laughs> it's, it's kind of a main theme of our podcast is is, is to <laughs> not stress as much. If just we to- knew then we would not stress. Yeah. I always tell parents a couple of different things. I, I remind them that, you know, you can go to an expert and get an opinion and you can go to another an expert and get a very different opinion. And while those opinions are important, I think the thing to remember that while, for example, I might be an expert in speech pathology, you're an expert at Liam. And I think parents need to be empowered and remember that they're the expert of their child. And you don't always have to do what the experts say. Sometimes you just have to listen to your gut and and just trust it. Um, And I think the other piece is just remembering that this is a marathon, this is not a sprint. And so the importance of self-care cannot be overlooked because at the end of the day, if you don't take care of you, then how can you be there for your child? Because you will become your child's best friend you'll become their therapist, you'll become their advocate, you'll become their teacher, you will become many, many things for your child. And I think it becomes even more complex when you have siblings involved because to no one's fault, you know, that sibling can sometimes get lost in the shuffle because of course your child that has, you know, needs uh, additional supports and so forth is going to require more of your attention. So I really encourage families to really talk to therapists about incorporating that sibling into that therapy process. Um, It's been very fun for me having been in the fields for so long because I have siblings that I remember sitting on the floor in the living room with their families and them helping me in therapy who now are speech pathologists and and graduated from college and and doing that. And that's very rewarding for me as a practitioner because I know I played a little piece in that, but it also became really a family-centered approach. And I think as practitioners, my advice would be to, you know, look at that whole family because you're not just serving the child, you're serving the entire family unit and and not to lose, you know, parents and or siblings in that process. It's a good point you make because as a parent, as a caregiver, you can really lose yourself sometimes. You can really focus so much energy on, on the other person that you can do some damage to yourself, which doesn't help the family in general. Absolutely. Now, can you speak on IEPs? Can you um, talk about services that parents can ask for or what services are and how they help? Absolutely. I I think the key that sometimes gets a little confusing is, you know, there's two different models. You have a a medical model, which really is what kind of private practices look at, at. And then you have an educational model, which is really what the school districts look at. And so what the school district is really looking at is what does this child need to be able to access their curriculum. Where me in a private practice setting, I'm looking at what does this child need to be successful in the home, in the world, in their, you know, in their environment. So where I might qualify a child for speech therapy, perhaps they might not qualify in a school setting because maybe they have enough language or enough of a means to be able to access their education, for example. So it is a little bit of a different model, but for those listeners that don't know what an IEP is, it stands for an individual educational plan. And as a parent, you have a right uh, when you have concerns about your child's development to request assessments through your school district. Once they've been assessed, you'll sit down with a team to identify what services your child may or may not qualify for. So some of those services might be, for example, adaptive PE. 
It could be speech therapy services. It could be occupational therapy services. It could be simple accommodations within the classroom, like preferential seating, or maybe extra time for tests if your child is a slow reader, for example. It could involve um, support services like resource services, like uh, special supports for reading and things like that, that could be provided on a pullout or push-in model. So there are a lot of different uh, potential services available. And then for larger districts, such as like Los Angeles Unified School Districts, um, I can't really speak to uh, school districts outside of the state of California because I'm not sure how they work. But within the state of California, there are things that they call non-public agencies. And what these are, are basically private practices in the communities that meet the requirements set forth by the California State Department of Education, which then allow those agencies to partner and contract with local school districts. So for example, if a school district has a shortage of speech language pathologists, or perhaps it's been deemed that your child might need individual speech therapy, but maybe that's not something they can do because they don't have the manpower at the school, so everything's done in group, you could ask for non-public agency speech, which then would allow you to go to a private practice, for example, um, outside of the school hours. And some families, you know, argue for their child to be pulled out of classroom instructional time to receive support might be more damaging than good. So it might be better for that child to have services after school so they're not missing out on, you know, curriculum time. And can you go back and hit, um, and this is this actually a, a good friend of ours uh, had asked me the other day about she's going into an IEP for her child just for preschool and she doesn't, she has no idea what to ask for. And I think a lot of times people don't know what these services are and to ask for them or, or what they're even asking for. So would you, would you go back? Could you hit and explain what um, adaptive PE is and maybe recreational therapy and even, and even occupational therapy, the difference between occupational and physical? Can you do that? Yeah. Um, so physical therapy is or physical. Yeah. Physical therapy is going to be really looking at um, a student's ability to motorically access the playground and the classroom environment from a gross motor perspective. So can they transition, let's say, and maintain their balance, leaving maybe a hard surface like concrete and then stepping onto grass, for example, or are they gonna trip and fall? Can they negotiate around a busy classroom? Like if you think about a preschool environment, right? There's gonna be toys on the floor. There's gonna be, you know, little cubbies and things like that. And can they negotiate in that environment safely? Um, if not, then perhaps they might need a physical therapy. That might differ from adaptive therapy, uh, adaptive physical education, where maybe it's work that might be working more on skills like ball skills, like being able to kick a ball, catch a ball, throw a ball, and things that would allow them to access those types of activities that occur on, you know, a, a, on a school ground, for example. In a classroom environment, most of the time, occupational therapy is going to be geared more towards that eye-hand coordination um, and handwriting. So being able to look at the board and be able to look at those letters and then be able to write those on paper or to be able to write legibly or hold their pencil correctly um, to be able to do those types of things. And that differs a little bit in a private practice where we might be looking at how do their motorical skills impact their ability to um, complete self-help skills, right? Like brushing their teeth, brushing their hair, getting dressed. 
But the difference is, is at school, they're not doing those things, right? They're doing those things at home. So again, um, the school's really looking at how does it impact their school day? Um, but I think you bring up a good point. If you don't know that those services are there, you don't even know what to ask for. So I would definitely say that if um, parents have um, regional center services, they should absolutely be talking to uh, their case managers. I know many of them will come to IEPs and act as an advocate. Also in our local community, you have the Family Focused Resource Center, which is an awesome resource. Um, the one at Northridge uh, will do um, meetings for parents to prepare parents for the IEP and they'll explain parental rights and it's free. They even give them an IEP binder um, to keep notes and do all that. Um, there's also a lot of really wonderful special ed attorneys here in Los Angeles and many of them Many of them will do pro bono work or they'll even just meet and consult and um, guide parents with some key points before the IEP and, and then welcome them to return later if they, if they need additional support. So I think there are some good resources available. It's just making sure that our families know where those are. Yeah, we've had some great episodes with Georgiana, uh, who's, who's a wonderful attorney. Um, and and we've, been, we've been very fortunate to have her on as a guest a few times too give some information. Well, that's great information you, you give us. And also the point you make about pushing in or pulling out, Liam uh, gets pulled out of class a lot. As you're talking, I think Stephen and I are going, wait, why, wait. We could do that? Oh, oh, this is, oh, wait, wait, this huh? is an option. Wait, we like, should do that. But it's a good point you make about uh, the push-in therapies or pulling a kid out of class uh, therapies and the possible impact. negative impact yeah. that could be for Liam he gets pulled out of some for some therapies and you kind of have to juggle that you know if is he is he getting pulled out at a at a time that is detrimental to him in class or um if we don't do this and we do try to do a non-public uh therapy then we're doing something after school is that how is that working is our schedule gonna handle that are we gonna be able to drive and park and do the whole, you know, that whole thing. So, yeah, I think it's good. It's that cost benefit ratio, right? And it's going to be different for every family, you know, again, to your point, you don't want to be running your child ragged. And I think that there's that, that piece of it too, that parents go through sometimes, right? They'll go to a professional, professional will recommend, you know, 500,000 hours of therapy and a parent feels like, oh my gosh, I must be a horrible parent if I don't do what was recommended. But you make such a good point. You really have to look at the big picture and there's got to be downtime, right? Every kid needs downtime and every family needs family time. So how do you juggle all that? And, and it's going to change. You know, you said you're always learning. And I think this, this road that you're on and this road that all of our families are on, it constantly changes. And you're constantly reevaluating because different priorities become a priority more so or less so as your child, you know, continues to grow and develop. Um, so it's, you know, it's, it's not an all or nothing. It's, it's, it's a tricky, a tricky path. <laughs> and going back to what you said about uh, that, the parent is the expert of the child. So they need to make those decisions. And we just want parents to be informed when they're making the decisions. Absolutely. And you know what? And it doesn't have to, and your decisions are never set in stone. Sometimes we make decisions and we're like, why did we make that decision? It's not working. Well, you can fix that. You can change that. You know, you can always try and, and modify. I always tell parents, if it's too overwhelming or twice a week, let's just start with one. Let's see how it goes. And if we feel like we're not moving, you know, quick enough, then we can always add a second hour down the road or vice versa. We start out with two. And if it feels overwhelming, we'll just, you know, we just, we modify, we adjust. Uh, we have to be flexible. This is, I think flexibility is, is the key word through this whole experience. What age should they start these therapies? 
it's going to be a little bit different for everybody. You know, the regional center used to say children with Down syndrome couldn't start therapy until 18 months. And that would make me crazy because we already know that they're at risk for delays. And when we think about the tone issues and we think about feeding and oral motor development and how that's going to impact speech development and speech intelligibility, the younger, the better. I mean, all the research points to the younger, the better. So if you have a child that has you know, more significant oral motor needs and feeding needs, that's all gonna impact speech and language development down the road. So I would, I would start as early as possible. I mean, I'm not saying day one of birth, but, <laughs> but as young as possible. Well, Liam had Liam PT in the, in the in NICU, the NICU, I remember, just a couple of weeks old, and we were, we were a little surprised, but then happy about it. Yeah. And for some babies who have a hard time, you know, nursing and latching on, but by all means, you know, they're starting occupational feeding therapy. You're right from, from that very early on, but I would even say speech therapy can start as early as, you know, 12 months. That's when we expect first words to emerge. And we already know that they're going to be delayed or at risk for delays in language development. So why would we want, not want to intervene and teach the parents great strategies to, you know, really know how to model all those enriched language um, opportunities for their child and how to modify their routines to encourage that language development. I love this and I love that you exist. And I wish that we knew about you 10 years ago when Liam was born, because it's a great, you, you provide such a great support for parents. And I, I think, you know, I, see, I do see as well, a lot of questions parents are never sure when they should start with therapies, whether it be OT or speech or, and, or physical therapy. And sometimes we don't get the straight answer or sometimes we don't have the ability to ask the question. Or we go by the guidelines of whoever's providing the service, like our insurance company. And, and maybe That's we gonna be could different. dig a little deeper there and, and see if it's possible to do it earlier. To, uh, to go back to your point about uh, parents really using that that therapy time as a, as a time to learn that's something that we we were always there for the therapies early on with Liam and we were able to then incorporate that through his week because even when he was getting the massive amount what we thought was a massive amount of of therapies you know every day something or a couple of things that's just a few hours of the day and to carry that on through the week and the weekend is is you can become a little mini therapist as a parent. Absolutely. I mean, the reality is, is, you know, being in a room with a speech pathologist for two half hour sessions a week or an hour a week is not going to teach a child to talk. It's going to be their everyday experiences and interactions in their natural environment. And so our goal as practitioners is to teach parents how to embed intervention through your everyday activities. You know, it's not about setting aside time and, oh, we're practicing language. No, you're doing language as you're eating, as you're taking a bath, as you're playing, as you're reading books, as you're getting getting dressed and it's just learning how to maximize all those opportunities. And I think when you're taught to do it that way, it also then takes down that guilt of, oh my gosh, how am I supposed to find this extra 20 minutes a day to dedicate to this practice time? It's, it's really just about everything that you're doing, just learning how to do it in a different way that maybe you didn't have to do with your other child if you had another child first, you know, that just incidentally picked up stuff in their environment versus having to be maybe more formally taught. Have you ever had anybody with a disability in your immediate circle? Yeah, my nephew um, has autism and my, um, my brother-in-law has autism. Um, but other than that, no, I just have always gravitated towards uh, wanting to be a helper. Because you're really delightful and you have such a great positive energy 
and it's and I and I love it. So I was just a lot of times that comes from you know being personally affected that 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 passion. We have we parents have questions, and and we'll put your uh, website in our our show notes so they can explore your website. But for people who don't have access to you because they're not in Los Angeles, to reach out if you have questions. Yeah, and I would like to suggest to anybody, because it is something that's offered throughout the entire world, is um, the Hannon Center. And if you go onto their website, which is hannon.org, they have amazing resources, books, um, classes, newsletters, and stuff for parents um, on the topic of language delay. And they have a great program called It Takes Two to Talk, um, which is a fabulous little program. And there are many Hannon certified speech language pathologists throughout the entire world. It's, It's in like I don't even remember, like 40 different languages. Even if a parent were to buy that book, they would learn so many wonderful strategies on how to help facilitate language um, in their child with a developmental delay. Well, what are the future plans you have for McCrory? One of the things that we really want to do is we really want to extend our services beyond the age of 18 years. You know, all of the kids that I serviced 20 years ago are now, you know, adults. And, uh, you know, again, listening to what our families need and their biggest fears are that they're... um, their loved one isn't going to be able to go to school or maybe secure a job or be able to live independently. And so we're really looking at the children and and family and young adults more holistically. So that really is our our next phase is we want to develop um, programs to train skills and and soft skills and job skills and help with job placements and job coaches um, for individuals with learning differences. What do you say to those concerns that parents have and families have? I think there's a lot of fear that I see families have of not wanting to see their child fail. And sometimes they may not push or want to push their child because they're so afraid that their child might not be able to do it. And what I've noticed sometimes is when we step back as parents and we actually give our child the opportunity to be independent and and we're not there to catch them, they rise to amazing feats that we didn't even know existed. Um, I could think of a child, and this is a different age group, but I remember a mom saying um, she was feeding her ice cream. And I said, what would happen if you put the spoon down? Would Isabel feed herself? And mom said, I don't know. I've been feeding her. I've never given her the opportunity. And I said, well, let's do it. She put that spoon down and her daughter immediately picked it up and put it to her mouth. And it was like a joyful moment. But the reality is, is that Mom had just been doing what she'd been doing her whole life. But what I try to remind parents is just because they couldn't do it yesterday doesn't mean that they can't do it today. I love you. That's I wonderful. Think, I, yeah. I, I ask those questions because those are the questions that I hear and those are the questions that I've had. And, you know, you're you're coming from a different place and I think, and I know just even from that answer that that you can empower people because I can say it but you've seen it and that's what you do and you've been doing it for the last 20 years. So the proof being in the pudding. Thank you. Thank you. You're welcome. It's really Steven gonna... stopped me because he knew that I was not going to find the words that I was looking for right then. <laughs> we, we cover each other. <laughs> but, I, but you know, those are, those are questions that we see all the time. And, and it is, there's, there's a lot of, I think there's fears just being a parent and, and they do, they get compacted and, Uh, you know, to hear someone who is um, certified to, to support our kids and has seen 
growth and challenges overcome, I think that's sometimes what we need is for someone to say, yeah, like I'll go back to the Iron Man, our, our, our friend who ran the Iron Man, the first, the first man uh, with Down syndrome to complete it. And, you know, you see that and you go, oh, okay. Yeah. It can happen now. Absolutely. And you asked me earlier, like, what are the differences? And I, I think that's a great difference that we're seeing is we're seeing a lot more um, integration of people with learning differences. And you're seeing companies really rallying and supporting individuals with differences. You know, you think about um, uh, Pity and Bow, is that what it's called? Uh, Biddy and Bow, uh, the coffee shop that is ran by individuals with Down syndrome. And now they have their third location and every community just embraces that coffee shop. And there's more and more of those little coffee shops just popping up and not just individuals with Down syndrome, but just individuals with dif- di- uh, you know learning differences in general. And it's just, it's just really exciting to see that there's a place in this world for everybody as it should. Yes. And I, I was going to ask you if there was anything else you would say to parents or what tips you have. I, I kind of feel I like you, you nailed that. it just yeah. then. But is there anything else, any, um, you know, we, we, we are if you knew then. So anything that you maybe would have done differently if you knew then or? I don't think that there would be anything that I haven't already said. I guess I would just reiterate the, the, the true, true importance of self-care. And I think, I, I think as another thing, you know, Every child is going to have their own trajectory of development and everybody's timeline is going to be uniquely theirs. So I think it's really important not to compare your child with Down syndrome against your typical child. Or if you go to a support group, your child with Down syndrome compared to that person's child with Down syndrome and not be feeling despaired if your child is just developing a little bit slower, they're going to get there. It's just, we're all in our own unique time frame, And one thing that I've recommended for parents that I feel has been successful is I think sometimes we can get so hyper-focused on where we want our child to be. So we're so focused on that top rung of the ladder. It's easy to forget the steps in between. And sometimes we, for, we, we miss those. Like we don't even notice that those things are happening. So I, I think a, a journal is a powerful tool just to journal those little things that your kiddo's doing so that when you get in that moment of just of depression and you feel like my child's just not progressing, I feel like we're, we've been stuck. You have something to go back to that's very concrete that reminds me, oh my gosh, just a month ago, Johnny didn't even do this. Oh my gosh, we're doing great. Um, so I think, you know, just doing those little things just to help you Um, stay encouraged because again, you know, your child needs you. Nikki, it's been such a pleasure having you on the podcast. Thank you so much. Yeah. I want to thank you for everything that you do in the community. And we are looking forward to the series we have set up with therapists from McCrory to get more in depth with occupational therapy, speech and behavior. So thanks for giving us this opportunity to um, be in front of your listeners. Please follow us on Twitter at if we knew then pod and you can drop us a line on our Facebook page at If We Knew Then Pod, or visit our website, ifweknewthen.com, to send us an email with questions and comments. And you can join our mailing list there and get alerts of future podcast episodes. All these links will be added to this episode's show notes. Thank you again, and we look forward to you joining us on the next episode of If We Knew Then. Oh,